Hello, and welcome to episode 119 of Commonplace. I'm Rachel Zucker, usually your host. Today, a guest talking about another author's book on another podcaster's podcast, which is sort of like being a co-host, but not exactly. This episode, our second feed drop, aired recently on Mike Sakasagawa's fabulous podcast, Keep the Channel Open. Unlike the last Keep the Channel Open episode we aired, in which Mike interviews writer Nana Kwame Ajebrenya, what you're about to hear is what Mike calls a Keep the Channel Open book club episode, in which he and a guest discuss the work of a third writer or artist. So in this episode, you'll hear Mike and I discuss the book Bianca by poet Eugenia Lee. This conversation touches on many of my favorite subjects, confessional poetry, mental illness, formal choices, the ethical considerations of writing about lived experience, the ethics of podcasting, how books teach us how they want to be read. And it's always a joy to talk with Mike about books, podcasting, and life. Another tremendous joy in my life right now is talking about books in my year-long cycle of reading with Rachel which is part book club, part class, part reading support group, part generative workshop, and its own magical weird community of readers and makers who like to spend time together listening and talking and making stuff. There's still plenty of time to sign up for Reading with Rachel. The sign up is in the show notes and on the Commonplace website. Some folks have signed up for the whole 12-month cycle, others for just one book. We'll be talking about Eugenia Lee's Bianca on April 30th. So if after listening to Mike and I talk about Bianca, you have questions either for me or for Eugenia Lee, please sign up. Re-listening to Mike and I talk about this book makes me even more excited than ever to talk about it with Eugenia and with the Reading with Rachel community. Reading with Rachel meets on the last Tuesday of every month on Zoom. The suggested fee for the first hour and 15 minutes, which often includes a live virtual visit from the author, is $30 per listener-only session or $150 for a six-pack of listener-only sessions. The suggested fee for the first half plus an additional 75 minutes, so a total of two and a half hours, is $80 per maker and listener session or $400 for a six-pack of listener-maker sessions. As with all courses offered through the Commonplace School for Embodied Poetics, no one is turned away for lack of funds. For more information about the school, please visit the Commonplace website or contact me at rachel at commonpodcast.com. The next session of Reading with Rachel will be December 26th, coming up soon. In that session, we will be discussing Bernadette Mayer's Milkweed Smithereens. January 30th is The Ferguson Report by Nicole Seeley. February 27th, The Black Period by Hafiza Augustus Jeter. March 27th, Happily by Sabrina Oramark. April 30th, Bianca by Eugenia Lee. May 28th, The Book by Mary Rufel. Tanya by Brenda Shaughnessy will either be on June 25th or July 30th. And I'll be talking about one of my books, either Poetics of Wrongness or Sound Machine, and whichever of those dates doesn't work for Brenda Shaughnessy. I haven't yet chosen which book we'll read for our final session in the cycle, August 27th, and I'm open to suggestions. Again, the sign up for Reading with Rachel is in the show notes and on the Commonplace website, 
I hope you'll join us. For this episode, I have a few copies of Bianca, courtesy of Four-Way Books, to give out to Commonplace Book Club members. To find out how to become a patron of Commonplace at the book club level or at any level, please visit patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast or go to commonpodcast.com. A huge thank you to Four-Way Books and to all the publishers who send us such amazing books. Thank you to Mike Sakasagawa. Thank you to all the patrons who support Commonplace. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you to everyone who sends us messages of support and encouragement. I urge you to subscribe to keep the channel open and check out Mike Sakasagawa's amazing backlist. And also consider becoming a patron of his podcast. The show is amazing, and lately, Mike has been airing some incredibly interesting short audio essays as patron extras, so sign up. The next Commonplace episode, which will air as soon as I get it finished, is an incredible poetry reading by Ronaldo V. Wilson and Fred Moten, and a conversation I had with Ronaldo and Fred about this reading. Until then, take care, be safe, and enjoy this conversation about Eugenia Lee's book, Bianca, between me and the wonderful Mike Sakasagawa. Hello, and welcome to Keep the Channel Open, a podcast featuring conversations about art, literature, and creativity. My name is Mike Sakasagawa, and this is episode 145. Today's guest is Rachel Zucker. Hey there, folks. Welcome to the show. For today's episode, friend of the show, Rachel Zucker, and I are having a KTCO book club conversation about Eugenia Lee's poetry collection, Bianca. Rachel Zucker is the author of Sound Machine, The Pedestrians, Mothers, Museum of Accidents, The Bad Wife Handbook, The Last Clear Narrative, and Eating in the Underworld. With Arielle Greenberg, she is the co-author of Home Birth, a poemic, and co-editor of Starting Today, 100 Poems for Obama's First 100 Days, and Women Poets on Mentorship. She is mother to three sons, hosts the Commonplace podcast, and teaches poetry at NYU and other places. And I should mention that with this episode, Rachel is now the all-time reigning champion for appearances on Keep the Channel Open. Before we get started, there are links in the show notes to purchase copies of Bianca from print in Portland, Maine, from the book Catapult in San Diego, and from bookshop.org. As you'll hear us discuss... The poems in this book are pretty intense. I always hesitate a bit to say what a book of poems is quote-unquote about, but in terms of subject matter, the poems in this collection talk about and depict the author's experience with childhood abuse, with mental illness, with alcoholism, and some of them go to some pretty dark places. And yet, and this is something that Rachel and I talk about, these poems aren't trauma porn. They're doing something else, something at the intersection of disclosure and representation and healing. But you'll hear us dive into that in a lot more depth in just a bit. Finally, I did want to mention that we had some issues with the audio during recording. So you will notice the audio quality fluctuate over the course of the episode. I think it's still completely comprehensible, though, and hopefully it's not too much of a bother. Okay, let's get started. Here's my conversation with Rachel Zucker about Eugenia Lee's Bianca. So normally I would start off by asking my book club guests 
why they picked the book that we're going to be talking about. And this is a little bit of a different situation because in some ways I kind of picked it that when I reached out to you to do this episode, you gave me like, I think a list of like eight books and then I picked and then we sort of unpicked and then repicked, but we picked this one together. Instead of asking you exactly that way, I think what I'm going to do instead is note that this is a book that you are teaching in a class at NYU. And so I guess I'm curious how that came about and why you wanted to pick it for your class. Well, I'm actually teaching it in my two po undergraduate poetry workshops at NYU. Um, and I just had the class where Eugenia Lee came to visit yesterday, but I'm also teaching it in reading with Rachel. So those are, that's my independent, unaffiliated adult reading group or whatever it's called. And so I, I read a whole bunch of books over the summer that were either their pub dates were in 2023 or maybe late 2022. Uh, I really wanted to find a range of genres and voices and styles for reading with Rachel. And I picked some nonfiction, some, some memoir, some fiction, uh, and mostly poetry, mostly single volume poetry. And uh, so I was looking, you know, at all of these new books, and this one was sent to me. And what I decided to do was to start reading a bunch of these books and any book that I felt like I couldn't put down, that went into one pile. And any book that I felt like it was an effort to keep reading went into another pile. And I decided to start with the books that were hard to put down, in part because many, many people that I've spoken to have had a real drop off in their energy for reading since mm. COVID, if not before. And I have also. And so I really wanted to privilege books that had a, a certain level of suspense and accessibility to them, at least for me. Mm. So I decided to pick this one for reading with Rachel, and then I wanted to bring someone in. Uh, I think it's really helpful for my undergraduates and, and when I used to teach graduate students to have the chance to talk to a live, in-person, working poet, and particularly a poet of color, not only, but those have been the most meaningful visits for my students over the past many years. So it was a it was a combination of things. I, I felt like the book was accessible, engaging, disturbing. Um, and I'll talk maybe more about that. I knew that Eugenia lives on the East Coast. I asked if she could come. And so all of those things combined to make me pick this book as opposed to some of the other ones that I felt like maybe I wasn't as interested in having the poet come in or I wasn't as interested in reading the book with my students. There's one other reason that this book sort of came to the front of the line, which is there's something going on right now with my undergrads that I've been noticing for at least five years, but it's getting more and more extreme, which is 
they avoid writing observation or description of the physical world almost entirely. And it's a very strange phenomenon uh, to me. And so like for the past two weeks in one of my two sections, I've gotten 10 poems, none of which, and I, I have a, one of my sections is 10 students. There is not a single description of something that exists in the real world. Hmm. And when I ask them about this, and also a real aversion to narrative, writing about their lived experience, anything that resembles autobiography. And it, it's astonishing to me. So Bianca is very, very much explicitly about her lived experience. She she really makes that very clear in the book and in the acknowledgments that she is the speaker of the poems. And there's a lot of really interesting, in, to, to my mind, description of things and events that I find very powerful and moving. Um, so it was a little bit of like, medicine maybe for my students in that way it's interesting what you're saying it kind of reminds me of this thing that i remember brandon taylor has talked about a lot on twitter back when we were all still on twitter and has written about in his newsletter this sort of strange way that modern fiction seems to be very interior without reference to place or physical space or things like that so that's something that apart even from just students is perhaps sort of seeping into the you know world of published fiction as well um it's not something that i've particularly noticed myself but i think that has more to do with what i'm reading versus what he's reading mm -hmm. it's interesting so to sort of back up a little bit my experience of this book was that uh, eugenia lee's publicist reached out to me, I think in sort of the early spring and sent me uh, an advanced copy, which I ended up reading in May, I think. And I, I thought that the book was really moving. It was a very intense experience to read this book, but I ended up passing on inviting uh, Eugenia Lee to come on the show. And the main reason that I ended up passing was just because I had no idea how to talk about a book like this with the person who wrote it. Something that you said just now is that it's she makes it very clear both in the text and then especially in the acknowledgments that she is the speaker of her poems. And I think that that comes through. Um, I think you're correct in that. But the way in which just in general for poetry, I feel like the poetic eye is something that it makes things hard to talk about sometimes. And I know that listening to sometimes to other interviews, you know, because I listen to a lot of interviews when I'm going to be talking to someone, I want to see what else they've talked about. And it's very common for interviewers to conflate the speaker of the poem with the author. And oftentimes that's mm -hmm. very problematic. Mm -hmm. But I feel like even in a book like this where the the speaker and the author are very close to, to each other, and that's both purposeful 
and it's not being obfuscated. It's something that is made clear. There is, I think, especially with this kind of subject matter, going to be such a such a, a pull for an interviewer, especially an inexperienced or a not very aware interviewer, to want to make the interview all about the writer's personal history and biography and their state of mind and their you know mental illness or mental health or whatever in ways that always feel really kind of icky to me so i was i was interested to get to the chance to talk about this book with you instead of with Eugenia i'm a little bit i'm a little bit unsure how that feels mm-hmm. to me but <laughs> we can i guess we can kind of go there a little bit well, I think, I mean, there's so many interesting things for us to talk about, about this book. And we could talk about the book itself. Um, I have a lot to say about the form, the formal choices that Eugenia chooses. And that's something I've talked a lot with my students about, the fact that it's in couplets, the way there's prose in the middle of the book the zuhitsu form and what's going on with that, specifically the line breaks, how she's using line breaks. And I don't think that a discussion of those things is separate from the discussion of the content. But then I also think that this question of like, who is the I in this book is is actually very interesting. I mean, I sort of just said offhandedly, well, she's the speaker. She is the speaker. And she does make that clear, but the book is called Bianca, and Bianca is the name that she she and her friends call her when she was undi- and undiagnosed with bipolar. So before she was she was already experiencing manic and depressive episodes, but it was before her bipolar diagnosis and before she went on medication. And so it's really interesting because. Is there a singular self, especially in a book where the author refers to herself by another name, and that's the title of the book? I mean, it gets really kind of complicated. But then I think there's a third, and to my mind, equally, if not more interesting way of talking about this book, which is how we talk about this book, but how we talk about any books, and and especially books of poetry, and especially books of poetry that are in the narrative confessional mode, right? And so, and and also, what each of us, what kinds of books and what kinds of authors each of us feels most comfortable and least comfortable talking about or talking to. So, I have a much easier time, um, I think, talking to Eugenia or someone like Eugenia about a book like this because, you know, for many years when I would do live readings, the most common question that I would get from someone from the audience would come up and say either, what does your husband think about these poems? Or I had a miscarriage and they would start crying and they would tell me all the details of their miscarriage. And so Eugenia has read my work. She knows that I write in a similar mode. 
you know, she I asked her, what's this experience like for you reading from this book in public or, you know, what getting responses from readers? And she said the most common kind of people like to tell her what medication they're on and and talk about medication. And I think for people like you and me who love books and 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 talk to authors as as part of our like literary citizenship it's very confusing about whether talking to the author as a human being with a lived experience is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do right because on the one hand like if you if you spend the whole time doing what you described where you're conflating you know the work of art you know it's it, this is not a memoir um and even if it were a memoir I'm not sure either of us would want to just say like, wow, sounds like you had a very unhappy childhood, you know, like that's not that's not talking about the book. And so that but on the other hand, can you imagine like going through a whole conversation with Eugenia and 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 pretending that the human being that you're talking to is not bipolar or or wasn't, you know, the the victim of like horrific childhood violence and abuse. Like that would also be weird. That would be like if you were sitting with your friend and you were just pretending that this huge part of their life wasn't real. And, I, and so I think that's an interesting thing to talk about too, like because when we're talking about books, part of what we're talking about is like, what is the experience for the reader in reading this book? And part of that is about formal choices. And part of that is about content. And part of that is also, I think, about what kind of response is the book, is the author through the their formal choices and content choices, eliciting from the reader? And 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 I think that's very similar to like how do we interview someone um, who's written a book like this, right? I think what I I mean as it is with both of us, and even in talking to you about books that you've written, um, which I've done twice now on the show, mm -hmm. that there is always this thing where I want to make sure that the way that I'm talking to someone isn't going to be a bad experience for them. Right. And my line as an interviewer is always to try and make the conversation more about the work than about the person who made the work partly because I just think that's a more interesting conversation and partly because I'm hoping that it will be a better conversation for the person I'm talking to. So can I uh, just challenge you on that for a second? Okay. So one of the things that Eugenia said in my class was that it's a very privileged, this is her opinion and her experience, that it's a very privileged position to be able to separate your lived experience from your work. And I think she means that in terms of her race and ethnicity. I think she means that in terms of her gender. I think she means that in terms of her experience as a mentally ill person and as the child, a, a child who's ha grown up in so much violence. So 
you know, I, I, I just think it's interesting because it's uncomfortable. You, we, this book is so, um, in your face in a way, right? It's not hiding, but it's confusing what, when you say like you want to have an interesting conversation and one that feels respectful and authentic, you know, for you and the author, I don't think you can have, I don't think you can separate it with this kind of book. But can I say I th- one more thing? I know I'm talking way too much. <laughs> You're not talking too much. One of the other things that she said, so this is her second book, and I have not read her first book. I don't know if you have. Um, I have not. But yeah. So one of the things that she said is that her first book, which took her about nine years to write, and it, that it was published about 10 years ago, was much more surreal. Hmm. And that she did not have the clarity. She didn't have literally the diagnosis, but she also didn't have the clarity or the vocabulary to talk about her lived experience directly in the first book. And so it's much more surreal. And that was a really interesting way for me to think about it, like in terms of how direct and confessional it is. It's also about clarity, like sh- the the diagnosis, the medication, the therapy, the treatment, the getting better, the having a child herself gave her the ability to see her own life in a way that she didn't want to couch any of it in metaphorical language. And she said she couldn't have done that in her 20s that was something that came to her through all of this therapy mm-hmm. and treatment um and her marriage and you know and becoming a mother so that also felt like it gave me permission to talk to her on that level of directness and clarity because it was very hard won for her and and really a sign being able to talk very directly about the content and the experiences is part of her health, which I don't think is always the case. Like, I don't think that's the case for Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. But I, I think that this book is really, it might be about mental illness, but it is about mental health. I think one of the things that's that that I find tricky about approaching conversations is just that it, you know different people want to have different kinds of conversations. Brandon Taylor, for example, who I mentioned before, also Alexander Chi, both of them are people who I mean Alexander Chi has like wrote a whole essay collection with the title "How to Write an Autobiographical Novel," in which part of what he talks about is how tedious it is that everybody always wants to ask him about his biography instead of about the fact that what he wrote is not a memoir, it's fiction. Mm-hmm. So I think it is it is one of those, and, and this is also just me being, you know, neurodivergent or whatever, and not, not, not necessarily always trusting my ability to intuit what kind of conversation people want to have. But I think that this question of what experience the reader is going to have with a book like this. So <clears throat> we haven't actually described this book. It's, uh, I would call it a poetry collection, even though it's in three sections and this, the, the middle section is prose. It's mm-hmm. more or less an essay. And it is detailing 
Eugenia Lee's experience with, among other things, childhood abuse at the hands of uh, an undiagnosed mentally ill parent. It is her experience of being a young person who didn't understand and didn't have, as you said, didn't have the diagnosis to understand that she was, um, that she had bipolar disorder, her process of learning to understand her younger self, her experience as a mother to a child who she does not want to pass these traumatic experiences onto of being a wife to a husband who she has a certain, uh, rather a lot of self-recrimination about the ways that her past experiences and her mental illness affect her relationship with her husband. It's all of these things, and it's more than that too. When we're talking about what kind of an experience the reader is going to come away with from a book like this, the word you used, one of the words you used when you were first um, describing this book was that you said it was disturbing. The word that I used was mm -hmm. that it's very intense. I think the way that people talk about these things is interesting. Like even just the cover blurbs, you know, like in Kathy Park Hong's blurb, she uses the phrases white hot rage. She uses cyclonic violence. She says that the book devastates her. You know, I think these are that it, that it pierces um, I think that mm -hmm. the ways that any of these things, we talk about these things is interesting. And I hope it's okay for me to bring this up. But you and I had talked previously about um, some of the responses that your students, your undergrad students had had to this book. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily clear that they'd even read it, but that you reading one of the poems in order to do a close reading of it in class appeared to be triggering for one of your students. And that in itself is, I think, very interesting, the whole concept of because this book, among other things, does talk about PTSD, there are, I think, three or four poems that are named post-traumatic stress disorder with something or other. And part of that is the experience of being triggered. And yet also in the acknowledgments, for example, one of the things that she talks about is who is the book for? And she says in it, sharing our stories and destigmatizing mental illness is one small step. And I thank you for reading this book, for taking this step with me. And at the very end, she says that the book is for you who have known what it's like to hate your own brain. I hope we learn to love our brains soon. I think that there is a way in which reading a book like this, whether or not you've had the experience of being traumatized, of childhood abuse, of mental illness, that there is a way to relate to the speaker like i know for me I, I i'm as far as i know not you know i don't have bipolar disorder i did have parts of my childhood that were abusive and traumatic not from my parents but from other people in my life and there are ways in which her experience i saw pieces of my own experience reflected in it and there is something about that that can be and often has been for me uh, very cathartic mm -hmm. and sort of um, that it's like the opposite of alienating, that it makes you feel a little bit less alone. But then again, and, and it seems to me that that, especially given the kinds of things that she talks about in the acknowledgments, that that is or was part of her purpose in writing and publishing um, these poems. At the same time, there's always the risk of 
you know, potentially triggering or even re-traumatizing a person, which is also something that she talks about explicitly in one of these poems is the experience of being re-traumatized. Mm -hmm. And I'm not exactly sure whether I have like a question or even like a settled idea in my mind of what any of that means or what, or, you know, what the ethics of it are or, or any of these things, but it's just that question of what the, the reader's experience is or ought to be or what she would like it to be is one that does seem important to me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, so a few things about that. One is one of the things you described it so beautifully. The only thing I would add is that the first section of the three and the la and the third section of the three are almost entirely in couplets. There are some tercets. There are some. Right. I actually know. counted. There's there's 34 pieces. 33 mm -hmm. of them are poems and 21 of them are in couplets. Yeah. So it's a lot of couplets. And and I just want to talk about the couplets for a second, because I think it's I think the question that you're asking is really important, right? Like when is writing something or making something cathartic when when is it triggering when is reading or listening to something cathartic when is it triggering and first of all i think that we're at a really interesting point in the history of psychology where we're understanding more about ptsd in particular and more about how important it is to find that line where you do revisit the traumatic events, the traumatic memories, but from a safe place. And that that seems to be the most effective, whether it's talk therapy, cognitive behavioral, DBT, psychedelic, that that combination of, of having someone or something that is stable and keeps you in the present while saying yes you you i am there with you to revisit these other experiences but you go there in manageable amounts and then you come back right so it's that coming back where so when i talked about sexton and plath earlier i think they in part you know it the time that they were living in and the therapy that was available to them, it was sort of like, hey, go home and write about your trauma. And meanwhile, make it, make it as vivid as possible and like live there. And I think they were re-traumatizing themselves. And I think that there's a lot of sort of like when you read Plath and Sexton, part of like the excitement is – but it's it can be very harmful is that feeling of like you're just it's unmitigated trauma. There's no sense that like, you know, but now you are an adult looking back at this situation. Now you are in the present thinking about the past. Now you are safe thinking about when you were endangered. And so one of the things I asked her about the couplets and she said she didn't necessarily uh, set out to write all these couplets. It was something that that kind of just happened and people started you know noticing and saying to her like wow there's so many couplets but she said once you know she she realized that and she was starting to think about why she was so drawn to the couplets um she talked about uh, two two big things one is that there's no no line can hide 
in in a couplet form. So it's uh, it's abutted by white space either before or after it. So it's there's almost like a spotlight on it on every single line. And the second thing she talked about was that it has this kind of implication of binariness or the duality between in terms of manic depressive disorder mania and depression and in terms of PTSD the past and the present and so in some ways it was like a real embodiment of not being able to hide and thinking about these like dualities and how do you hold those things together and I then also talked to her about how when you're working with couplets, the line breaks are are constant and then these stanza breaks. So you have this, to me, the line break and the stanza break is this opportunity to take a breath, to change directions, to rethink what's just happened, to make the line, to break the line, to create multiple meanings. And so years ago, when I talked to Ross Gay for Commonplace, and I was talking to him about trying to write poems about my kids' mental illness, and he suggested couplets. And especially when working with a longer form or a longer poem that was like, felt like the material was like too hot to hold. And I, I kind of just trusted him. And, and that was really helpful and opening in opening things up for me. I didn't really thought about those like particular aspects about like how many line breaks there are and how the white space like really makes things hard to hide, um, but also provides this, I would say, possibly therapeutic moment of pause, even though it's this constant disruption of the line break and the stanza break, it's also this opportunity to come back into the present, um, to resituate yourself, to almost see yourself and the story of your life. You see yourself as a character, which I think can be enormously cathartic rather than triggering. And you see the story of your life as a made thing. Mm. You are in control of the pacing. You are in control of the making of it. And so I, I, I think that that's one of the ways in which she is able to handle this really intense, disturbing material and even though it is d intense and disturbing, I did not feel I did not feel traumatized by this book. And interestingly, the student who asked for a content warning or a trigger warning had not read the book. So my reading the poem out loud was very upsetting to him. But when he did go get the book and read it, he had no problem with it. Hmm. So it's interesting because and and this raises questions for me as well, which is like, especially with poetry, but maybe with everything, like, is it the content in and of itself? Or is it the execution? Right? Is it the, you know, uh, I mean, there are poems that devastate me, that destroy me, that are not about traditionally, 
you know, I'm thinking of a of a James Schuyler poem, This Dark Apartment, which is just this chatty, you know, poem and ends with this line of such heartbreak that I mean, every time I read it, like I like my heart breaks, but it's not. I, I don't need a content warning for it in, unless I need a content warning for every single human disappointment and heartbreak in the world, which maybe I do. <laughs> so I don't know. I think she's doing some things formally that at least for me, keep it. I know it's not happening to me and mm -hmm. I know it's not happening to her in the present. And I can see that she is writing this book in a way that's very vulnerable and open, but it's not traumatic for her. She's not having a mental breakdown on the page, which some writers are, but she's mm -hmm. not. There's uh, like 10 things that I wanted to follow up on in that. The first one, though, I think this thing that you just said about your student having an easier time with it read on the page versus read aloud versus hearing it. Uh, it really brings up for me that the, there is such a difference between hearing a poem and reading a poem. Mm -hmm. And in particular, when we're talking about this in the context of poems written in couplets, the way that contemporary poetry, or I mean poetry for a very long time, poems are not end stopped in the way that they were like in Shakespeare, for example, right? They're not, it's not obvious that when, when you're reading something aloud, when you're hearing one of these poems, that they are in couplets. You really don't have a way to know that unless you pause at the end of every line, which most people don't do when they're reading. And it's interesting to me to think that there is something about seeing these lines as lines on a page that makes the experience different, not just because of the fact that hearing something aloud is more dynamic, um, but also because seeing it on the page, you get to see this sort of structure, this feeling of order that comes from seeing these are in couplets, as opposed to, you know, some poets will have stanzas that don't line up, that don't match each other. And I, mean, I think there's even some of that in this as well, or uh, prose poems or poems where the lines are not lines, but they're just slashes through a big block of text feels very different. And it, and what that also brings up for me is what you what you said that she said about couplets making it hard for a line to hide, mm -hmm. but also with couplets, every line has another line there with it. Mm -hmm. So even though it does act a bit as a spotlight, it's not as much of a spotlight as, for example, I think three or four of the poems in couplets end with a single line. Yeah. And that really nails that last line down, especially because I think in all of the cases, that last line, you know, the couplet before it is end stopped. So you get an end stopped couplet, a stanza break, and then a sentence or two that stand all by themselves, right? Yep. And one of the things that I always think about in college, I don't remember when this was, but I remember um, a while back, um, Dennis Smith and Franny Choi were talking on Versus about some love poems that Dennis had been writing and writing in couplets and how when they, 
it's funny because this was like a throwaway part of the conversation because you know that show also was primarily around the interview section right Mm -hmm. and it was just sort of this almost little throwaway part but Denez talked about how when they when they're writing in couplets, it's like, oh, they're they're little couplets. They just kind of go together, and they're they're just marching down the page, and that, that that's kind of you know kind of cuddly almost, mm-hmm. you know. And and the fact that these lines here, to me, there is something about this where none of the lines, except for some of those last lines, but they don't have to go through any of this by themselves. Yeah, there's something to that for me as well. Um. I think that's huge. I think that's like the patient and therapist. I think that's like the adult self going back to the child self and revisiting, but not, you, you know, you're not reliving, you're re, you're visiting. I think it has to do with mother and child. I think it has to do with husband and wife. I think, I think you're right. I think there's something very comforting about those even though you can't hide. And she also said that someone else had mentioned to her that the couplets look like little coffins mm. on the page. But but yes, you're right. And then, I mean, I'm just like looking through the book. And first of all, the very last line of the book is one of those singletons in a, you know, after several couplets. And the very last line of the book is, all my life I thought I was hard to love which is devastating and i'm looking at those last lines and they are they're to have those couplets and then that single last line is 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 pretty brutal it's very stark yeah so and then another thing you were talking about there we were talking about line breaks and how a line break can function and how that becomes so much more stark when they're in couplets like this it's something that uh even gets uh, noted, I think, yeah, in in one of the cover blurbs, Tracy Brimhall says that Eugenia Lee is fiercely honest and a master of line breaks. Hmm. There is a, a a way in which I feel like oftentimes the line breaks in these poems, whether they're in couplets or not, really creates a sense of surprise mm-hmm. and also of like there are times when the line break or stanza break happens in such a way that what comes after the white space, it requires you to go back and reevaluate the thing that you thought you just read in a way that's very jarring at times, Mm -hmm. but that also feels like it's sort of reenacting the experience of going through your own memories and having to re-understand them having learned something new later in life, which so many of the poems are very much, very explicitly about that experience. Yeah. But those line breaks are, they're potent. They're potent. And I think they're doing, I mean, they're they're another sort of embodied expression of exactly what we're talking about, where Two things. One, this difference between what you see and what you hear, even when you're reading it on the page, I think you hear it both ways. You you run over the line break, but but your eye sees the single line and the single line as it is, is a unit. There's there's a kind of um, 
like sometimes she'll she'll have a period and then a little word like how at the end of the line and it and it's not syntactically experimental poetry so it's really written in pretty syntactically normative sentences and yet the line breaks are are sometimes but not always working against that kind of american english expectation of where you would put a line break. So it's both destabilizing, but it's also kind of stabilizing because each line has a kind of completeness, even if it's there's a brokenness as well. And and so to me, again, that's like it's both mimetic of the way an atypical brain or a kind of destabilizing sense of reality can feel both very broken over and over and over again and very surprising and very uncertain. And I think that's partly what the student was responding to when I read the poem out loud, like they just didn't know where it was going. And that was very scary, I think, for the student. Um, they had they felt like they had no control. But there's also, once you read the poem on the page, I mean, first of all, you have the control, you can just stop reading, or you can skim, or you can read the end and then go back and read the beginning. But there's also a way in which the line breaks are are both destabilizing and comforting, just the way mm. the couplets are both full of this brokenness, and yet this companionship of those two lines together. Yeah. Something that you talked about also is the sense that you get that the writer of these poems is not living in the moment of the poem. Yeah. And the way that memory and perspective are sort of layered in these poems is one that it jumped out with to me pretty quickly. So the fifth poem, mm -hmm. page 11, is called Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder with Secret Knock. Mm-hmm. And so in this poem, it's describing an event that's a little bit unclear exactly what happened, except that we know that it, it involves the speaker as a child, six years old, getting hurt. Mm -hmm. And there is this way that we're presented with this memory. And at the beginning of the poem, the beginning of the poem, my hand soaked in blood, my head cracked open. I tell the five-year-old to fetch the phone, the two-year-old to fetch a towel. So it's in the first person. It's in the present tense. Mm -hmm. We're in the middle of this memory. And as the poem proceeds, we see that this is a memory. And in fact, later on, we're even taken to a different memory of the speaker being older and having her own baby. Mm -hmm. There are these three moments that are kind of overlaid with each other, the speaker at six year old six years old the speaker older have as an adult having a baby and then the person writing the poem that all three of those moments are kind of laid on top of each other and this happens at a bunch of points throughout the book where there's the thing that's happening and then one or two or three or however many layers of viewing that thing through uh, the lens of further experience, which just uh, on one level was interesting to me just because that is my experience of how memory works is of experiences being layered on top of one another and 
that they're not actually happening in the past, that they're happening right now also. Mm-hmm. But with this layer of remove, and I, I think that, that the way that that operates here, you basically already said this, but just I, I guess I just wanted to underline it. The way that the perspective of the poem has that remove of time from it, mm-hmm. where it's kind of like when you're reading a uh, reading a novel, let's say, and although this seems to be changing, the traditional voice of a novel is to have it be written in third person past tense, whereas there are some novels that you'll read in first person past tense, but if you read it in first person past tense, then that changes how you understand it a little bit because you know that the person who's narrating it has to still exist to be able to tell the story. And there's something similar that's happening, I feel like, with these, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, a few things. I think, I mean, not everybody reads books of poetry start to finish. I do. That's the way that I read. And I think that in this case, I feel like it's really significant what comes before this. It starts with a, you know, a quote from Anne Sexton. And then the first poem is what I miss most about hell. And that is the first line in a way of, of the couplet, because the first line of that poem, which is the first line of the book in a way, is, is prayer. So the title, what I miss most about hell is prayer. But it's it it is mostly in past tense. And then that second poem, The First Leaf, which is one of my favorite poems in this book, starts, I thought I forgave you. Then I took root and became someone's mother. So we're in first person, but we're in the past tense. And then we get the next poem is Family Medical History. That's in the present tense, but it's while she's pregnant. And so it's a different kind of medical diagnosis. Then we get undiagnosed, which is in the past tense, and it's about her childhood and being undiagnosed, but experiencing the the symptoms of manic depressive disorder. And then we get to post-traumatic stress disorder with secret knock. And and so in some ways, that is this like moment in the book where my hand soaked in blood, my head cracked open, I tell, right, that's we're in the present tense, it is very sort of shocking, it's very vivid, it's very visceral, it's told as if it's happening right that moment to her. But we have the diagnosis, so to speak, of the title. And we have the poems that came before it that situate us or that teach us in a way that we're going back and forth between past and present, between different kind, between being the child and being the mother of a child, between um, the child self and the adult self, between being undiagnosed and being diagnosed, between medical care and a lack of medical care. So I think like by the time we get here, I, I think it's that same that same thing that we're talking about over and over again, that she is she's she's not wanting to shy away from the truth of what happened or the vividness of how she felt about it 
And she's not wanting to kind of protect the reader or make it like, you know, give the reader a watered down version. But she's also, it's not um, trauma porn. She's not trying to shock for the sake of shocking. And she's not, I think she's she's not trying to re-traumatize herself or traumatize the reader. And I think that, so like, I think it was a great choice not to open, for example, with this poem. I think there's something about exactly what you're saying that the reader is able to maintain a certain kind of distance from I'm able as the reader to maintain a certain kind of distance from her memory and from my own memories by the time I get to this poem, while also like being open to hearing and seeing what she's sharing with me. I mean, I feel like compelled to just bring this up, but like we're having this conversation. It's such a bizarre, like human existence is so bizarre. Like we're, yeah, I'm, I'm remembering my childhood. I'm thinking about the books of poetry that I've written about my, myself and my kids and my parents. And I'm currently working on a novel about that's written in, in third person. The main character in quotation marks is clearly me. So like, why is it a novel? What's going on there? And what what is this whole, like, who cares on some level? Like, I can imagine one of my students sort of being like, whatever, who cares whether it's in past tense or present tense, whether it's in first person or third person or, you know, second person, <laughs> like you're making such a big deal of that. But I, but it's not, it's not, it is a big deal. This This question of how to be open to the experience and the suffering and the violence of the outside world, and also how to be like really alert to the ways in which some kind of violence creates a certain kind of like local or national or global reaction and other kinds of violence goes completely unnoticed. Um, and that we have a responsibility to participate and be discerning and aware of the way in which like stories of violence, memories of violence, experiences of violence are used sometimes to perpetuate more violence and being open and vulnerable to all of those or imagining that that is happening to us at this moment is not actually healthy or real. Right. So these questions of like whether something is in present tense or past tense or what what the point of view is seem to me to be not just literary devices, but ways of trying to understand what it means to like function with sanity in an insane world and to function as like a loving citizen and and neighbor and human being and also you know keep going keep living and so to be both really committed to choosing sanity but to be open to the reality which is that the world is insane <laughs> th this book helps me maintain like that practice which is not that easy for me
and I think it's not that easy for most people. Well, um, it's interesting just maybe it's not interesting. It's not actually a coincidence because we are, of course, all living in the same world, experiencing the same crisis after crisis after crisis. Um, I told you in the pre-show that I just recorded and released my first little mini essay for a bonus episode. And it was really about this, this question of how to be in the world when the world is awful and what the function of beauty in in a terrible world is and and whether or not art has any place in any of this or for that matter a podcast Mm -hmm. about art and if people want to listen to that then i guess they can sign up for the patreon (laughs) but i'm excited to hear it but i think that one of the things that i find about this these poems is how apparent it is that even though it is difficult for the speaker of these poems, that there is such an explicit desire not to visit these same horrors upon her own child, her own spouse. And that there's this very explicit, like, I'm I'm really trying really hard. I don't always know if I'm doing a good job. I don't know that I'm successful at it to any degree at all but i'm trying really really hard not to not to have this thing affect my new family the way that my family did to me mm-hmm. that there is something about that that it takes the experience of the collection as a whole and by the way i do think that especially for single volume poetry that reading it in order is usually kind of important because i do feel like that most single volumes of poetry are written with a certain arc in mind, or even if they weren't written that way, that them being presented in that way is pur- purposeful. But that even though the individual moments or images in many of these poems are kind of harrowing and deeply upsetting, that there is a sort of tenderness to the experience of the collection as a whole. Mm-hmm. And that that is both in the arc of the collection as a whole, but also often in the arc of a single poem as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, I actually think uh, this is not a criticism that I would. I can also imagine a reader or a critic <laughs> saying, yeah, there's something very bougie about it, you know, like the goal that you're describing of wanting to end this cycle of violence, wanting to be a good mother, wanting to protect her child as she was not protected at all, is also like wanting to be medicated, wanting to get, quote unquote, better, wanting to be to not hate her own brain, as she said, you know, somebody could say like, well, the world is fucked up. It's not it's not your brain that's fucked up. Like, you know, there, there certainly is um, an argument to be made that medication and diagnosis and, you know, this kind of like, let's make everybody normal. Let's make everybody somebody who can work, um, that that is a capitalist, you know, goal 
to make people good laborers and good members of society as we see it, right? And I do think that that's another element of what kind of poetry gets published and gets read. Like there, there's a kind of there's I think there's a desire for like, let's see the fucked up person get better, you know, and get normal again. And there's only certain so much fucked upness that we want. And it makes us all feel better. Because we get to like go like we get to like go through the the violence and but we're protected from it. And then we know that it kind of ends up okay. And I can imagine that, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't I really don't think that's what this, this collection is, though. No, I don't think so no. either. And I do think to some extent that this book, Bianca, has intense contents or subject matter, but it is not, as I keep saying, like a a disturbing book in certain ways. You're not watching a person have a psychotic episode in the writing. You're watching a person think about and and be healed from or come to a, a place of greater stability. But you're not, I don't feel in danger of losing my mind when I read this book. And I don't feel that I'm watching someone jump into the subway tracks as a, you know, it's, it, there mm -hmm. are books of poetry like that. Sure. I think that that criticism, it's not that I, I disagree and, and with people who would make a, the kind of criticism to say that, you know, the, the, the narrative of, of, you know, things are fucked up and then I got better kind of thing. It is one that serves capitalism. It is one that, that serves the status quo. And yet I also, I think that it is, very telling that most of the people I have ever seen talk about stuff like that are people who are operating from a relative position of privilege and comfort because, you know, I mean, people, for example, who, as in this book, are struggling with mental illness, they're not approaching it from the standpoint of, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't get better just so that I can fit into the world. They're suffering. And so they want to, they want to ease their own pain. So the, the, the whole criticism of whether or not these things were reifying the current structures of power is just, I find it very fascinating that it is mostly the people who are least, least burdened by the, the structure who are the ones doing that criticism. Um, you know, it strikes me that we haven't really talked about, like, if somebody's listening and we just keeps talking about this book and we say Eugenia Lee, but she's not white. And right. we haven't, we haven't really talked about that. I don't know what there is to say about it, except except I think that's very important to say. Yeah. Yes. Um, you wouldn't know that from, I mean, saying it out loud, Lee can sound like an Asian name, but the way it's written out, L-E-I-G-H, it doesn't look like a stereotypical Chinese or Korean name. Eugenia Lee is Korean American. And the that was the, the next thing I sort of wanted to get to in what you're talking about, people of color... And it's this is a burden that falls more on on black writers than on any other writers of color, mm -hmm. perhaps the exception being native writers, but certainly more than East Asian writers 
But even there, like, yes, there is an expectation, not necessarily to perform your trauma, but to perform whatever stereotype it is about your people, right? So like for East Asian or South Asian writers, the thing that we're supposed to be performing is not necessarily our racial trauma at living in a racist society that visits violence upon our bodies, although many of us do have that experience, but rather we're supposed to be talking about the ways that it, you know, we we feel like we are perpetually foreign and that we're not we're 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 in this weird in between third space and that you know our parents are immigrants or and and so we're always in between worlds we're not accepted by either one or like whatever you know people want to talk about the curry narrative where we're also always supposed to talk about our stinky lunch boxes and and shit like that and i have a, a deep amount of ambivalence about that whole discourse because on the one hand like i get that there are a multitude of experiences that aren't encompassed of even East Asian immigrant experiences that aren't encompassed by the stinky lunchbox trope. However, that is also something that I did experience, even though I'm not an immigrant and neither are my parents or my grandparents, I did still experience that. And so it is still meaningful to me to see that written down, but I also get that this is, this is getting a little far afield where I think is interesting about this particular book that we're talking about is that with very few exceptions, Eugenia Lee does not mention her ethnicity hardly at all in this book. I actually counted the number of times, and I think it's like four or five times there are even, there are references at all to being Korean or going to Korea or something about Korean culture. Mm -hmm. But with those very few exceptions, there's not really any racial markers in the poems. And to me, on the one hand, that kind of does feel a little pointed. You turn the book over and there's her author portrait and she's very obviously Asian. Mm -hmm. And so to me, on the one hand, I could interpret that as being like, I refuse to do this. I'm doing this. This is even something I've thought about in my own creative work is I'm not going to make work about my experience of being Asian because I know that's what is expected to me. And in some ways, making work that people don't think of as quote unquote Asian work it is perhaps uh, itself a potentially subversive act in saying, I can do this thing too. This is authentically who I am and I don't have to live according to your stereotype. On the other hand, I could also very much see the idea that, well, why does it have to be pointed that she doesn't include these markers? Like, that's not really what this is about. I don't I haven't read her other books, so maybe she does that more in the other book. But like this is about these experiences that aren't really being racialized in most cases. This is the experience that she had. She should be able to write about it in whatever way makes sense. Um yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I, I so on on page 69, I, and I agree with you. It's it's not I think there are a lot of reasons for this, but it, it is not the it is not what the book is about. The book is not primarily about being Korean American. Um, but there's one of the several post-traumatic stress disorders with something else, um, and with Han in this case, and these two Korean characters that I can't read. And it's a, it's a really interesting poem. And then toward the end, uh, it's it's one of the longer poems. It's in couplets. And at the end of page 69, she says, to be Korean is to house rage, 
palpable rage. Are people collectively unwilling to let go believe we share a turbulence, a complex emotional cluster? That was such an interesting uh, phrase there. It's an italics, a complex emotional cluster. Uh, I, I felt like it. the book is called Bianca, as we mentioned, and Bianca is the name that she and her friends gave to Eugenia when she was undiagnosed or acting mentally ill. And there are moments where they kind of want Bianca around because Bianca has a kind of energy and and power and um, survival and rage. And the only time Bianca, it, we we don't get to know who or what Bianca is until the middle of the book. Um, so to me, there's something important about the placement of that information um, and and the the delay in which we get that that seems maybe connected to the way her Korean American identity is also not the thing you get on the first page, but and comes into the book in its own way and as part of a complex emotional cluster, I think that she's, we don't really get, at, at least I don't really see this statement of like, to be Korean is to house rage, palpable rage. Like I don't, rage is such a important part of her experience, both as a child and as an adult. And here she's saying that there's also some there's a connection between her identity as a Korean American and her heritage and this rage, this history of rage um, that she's experienced. I don't know that that to me feels like that that I'm able to diagnose that by the end of the book. Like in in order to say like well what what percentage of your experience in this book or in your life is due to your mental illness and what experience is due to your cultural heritage and what is due to your to your class class is also something that comes up um, in the book but not a lot not certainly not as much as these other things I would say the same about gender certainly you know her her identity, her, her lived experience is always through the experience, the embodied experience of being a cis woman. But there's not a ton about the significance of gender in this book. I mean, certainly I write much more about womanhood, I think, more explicitly than she does. And yet, I I would never say it's not a part of this book. I mean it is it's it's visible in the fact that like most English books don't have non-English language in them. That's pretty significant. But I think I don't know. I think it is it is complex. I think it is and I don't know whether part of it is the difference between the very significant real difference between uh, being Korean American and being black in this country. Like that's a huge difference. And what how much of it is due to the difference between being Korean American and being white. 
to what extent she had ha- her lived experience is one of white passing privilege and to what extent it's not. I don't know if her husband is white. I don't know if her child is mixed race. It, that's not whiteness is not a central part of this book. Her Korean heritage, I think, is there, but it's not like uh, spotlit, I guess. But I I did notice that whiteness kind of as a violent force in her life was not so visible. I kind of wonder if a person came to this book without the cover Mm -hmm. or was just presented as like, I don't know, like Xerox copies or whatever of all the poems in order and therefore did not have the that author photo on the back cover how they would receive this because my experience going in knowing that she is a korean american author my experience of it is th- that there are not very many uh, markers of that mm-hmm. in the text um but i feel like it, especially because of the way that her name is spelled if you came to this without that author photo and didn't know anything about her as a person that there aren't very many markers of it, but what ones are there, at least some of them are very obvious. So that might actually make it make those things really stand out to you if you didn't already know that. Um, it might make you reevaluate things that you'd already read mm-hmm. because, especially in this country, I mean, there is sort of an assumed default whiteness to when we're reading something that doesn't have racial markers. But I also, think too that this- also, it goes back to what we were, or what I was saying before, which is like early on in the book, there's a, a line. Um, when my father kidnapped us, I didn't want to go home. I wanted to be feral. And then it kind of goes on, like to describe, like if she had been a little white girl and kidnapped by her father, a rich white girl, there would have. I feel like more would have happened. <laughs> this is sort of what Maybe. I'm saying. I, 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 I mean, I guess I feel like. Uh, I mean, the the way you qualified that as a rich white girl does sort of qualify that, right? Because, like as you said, class is a part of this. It's not really commented directly upon, mm-hmm. but it is. It does factor yep. in these stories. If you were to read something about that, and you knew like a, a similar story. And you knew that, for example, the poet was, I don't know, from rural Appalachia, would that make it strike, you know, would it, would it, would, would it not be, I don't know. I don't know how that would, that would, that would hit differently. I mean, I guess I, let me expand on that just for one second, which is to say one of the things that she said in class, and I think this is really important to remember is that when children grow up with the kind of abuse that that she experienced it's it's pretty well known that like overwhelmingly the child has a very difficult time blaming or even hating their parents because their parents are st- as they're still entirely dependent upon their parents for survival and so almost always what happens is the child internalizes that hatred, despair, fear, terror, and they think they're doing something wrong because it's much less scary to imagine like that 
you're in control of it. If you could just stop being bad child, you know, things would be okay. Whereas if you really get in touch with like, no, my father or mother is dangerous and scary and I have no control over this. And that that is so terrifying that your 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 brain will like really not allow you to do that. So if that's the story that she's telling, if that's kind of like the, you know, because we don't really, we know some of the violence that happens, but she doesn't give us a diagnosis. So she doesn't, she doesn't tell the story of her father's life so clearly. She doesn't tell the story of her mother's life so clearly. We get little bits and pieces, but the only thing that's really, I think, told somewhat clearly is her growing into an awareness of what is her story and her quote unquote fault and that she was not at fault for this abuse that she experienced as a child. And I think there's got to be some connection between that experience and the way race does and doesn't enter into this book and other kinds of identity and positionality. I mean, I I really think, you know, so much of the violence and the illness of racism is both external, but also the internalized experience, the internalized racism not just structural. So I don't think, I think she's not talking so much about how she was seen by others, but much more about how she sees her own past, which within the family, I don't think she would have seen that as a racialized experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, Here's what I'll I'll say. I mean, I think just in general that people who grow up in with a traumatic experience as a child, oftentimes, regardless of whatever their race is, don't really realize either that it was bad or how bad it was until someone points it out to them later in life. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a racialized experience. But what I can say as a person who is uh, of East Asian descent and uh, has a weird brain is that there are a lot of times when... I have found myself thinking to myself now is this is this a an Asian thing or is this a, a my family thing or is this a, an autistic thing or is this just like a me thing is this just my personality or like what what is this mm-hmm. and I I think that especially in that post traumatic stress disorder with Han there is a it's not it's not something she's explicitly going through that thought process, but I think it's there. It's available in the reading, especially because in, in the notes section at the end, like she's, I think inflects it a little bit. I, I just want to, so she, she, she says in post-traumatic stress disorder with Han, the interpretation of the Korean sociocultural concept of Han is an intentionally clumsy one fumbling in the hands of a third generation Korean mm-hmm. American expe- speaker and should not be conflated with or mistaken for scholarly work about Han, which is ever-evolving in the United States, in Korea, and elsewhere. The purpose of Han's cameo in this piece is to draw attention to its similarities to PTSD as experienced by the poem's speaker. And that does 
kind of underline that. Is this a me thing or a, a mental illness thing, mm -hmm. or is this the Korean thing or what? Um, and also acknowledging her own limitations as a person who, as a third generation Korean American has a certain remove from uh, her ancestral culture. Mm -hmm. All of that is, is there. It is complicated. <sighs> I feel like I was going somewhere with that. I really don't know exactly where, <laughs> but um, I think that that is, um, it's such a small little moment. I mean, even that one poem is just one small piece of the collection as a whole. And there, it feels like talking about that part while not, it is not, irrelevant to the experience of these poems it's not irrelevant to the understanding of you know the speaker's experiences it's interesting it also feels almost tangential even though it's kind of not mm -hmm. it, it feels a little bit like a reach even though i think it is also present intentionally and you know as a person who also has had a lot of struggles over the course of my life with being racialized in a particular way. I find myself both wanting to reach for this reading and this interpretation and also wanting to reject it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's something that um, Eugenia Lee also struggles with or not. I'm not even 100% sure how relevant like my particular <laughs> my particular combination of of weird brain and 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 any of this is relevant to like a a wider discussion of this book but there it is. Well, I think it it, it I agree with you. It feels both tangential but important. And I guess you know, one way of thinking about it, and I'm just having this thought for the first time, so it, it, I might, it, this might be dumb. Um, if part of healing from PTSD is being able to separate the past from the present, be it, but be able to integrate your past experiences, your traumatic experiences with your present experiences, race and ethnicity are really interesting aspects of identity because they are both about the past and the present. And so that's a really interesting, I, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination saying not being white is a pathology, but it is certainly a health risk in this country. It is certainly both institutionalized and individual racialized violence is a is a real and serious and present danger to people of color and yet it also has to do with both one's own family of origin lived experience and then you know speaking as a jew one's connection to some kind of history that has nothing to do with you and yet does have something to do with you. And and that is an interesting thing as well. So here she is drawing attention to like she's third generation. It's important to who she is. It's, or And here she says it's important to the sp speaker, you know, the speaker of the poem. She She goes back to that separation. And yet it is really in the past, very literally. And so that's just kind of an interesting thing for me to think about as a reader 
when I'm reading any book, but particularly a book like this, like what's in the past, what's in the present, what's in my present as the reader of this book, what's in my past as in how am I identifying with this speaker, with this author, with this, you know, with even myself at the moment that I'm reading it from my own history, from which is not the history of the speaker in this book? And how how does the past and the present in the act of reading come together? How are those integrated? How are there moments of disconnection, of fragmentation, you know, one doesn't want to over-identify either with one's own past or with the author who is not you, you know, and yet one does identify, I think. I think there's no way that we can read deeply without some kind of identification. So I don't know, that's like a very sort of philosophical uh, way no, of but thinking I think it. it's relevant. Yeah. I do think it's relevant. And I think it's, especially in a book where the subject matter is so much about mental illness, right? And to what you're saying, like, uh, this is actually something, this is, this is particular to me and, and and a person with my particular heritage, right? That I think a good chunk of the um, Asian American writers who I've either had on the show or talked about on the show have been Korean American. Mm -hmm. And because of the way that um, Asian-ness exists in American context, we do have a lot in common. Our experiences do overlap quite a bit. But, you know, the Korean American experience is quite different from the Japanese American experience in many ways, uh, not least because of the fact that a lot of the Korean American experience is caused by the way that Japan occupied Korea in the early part of the 20th century. And there is always this danger. And this is something that I, I've had a few moments uh, that I felt were kind of cringy in the past of this show where I... I've been talking to a Korean American writer and like, I wanted to make it really clear. Like I'm not trying to appropriate your experience here, but then that just ended up made it, making it more awkward. Mm -hmm. But I think that there, there, for me, that's one aspect in which I, I might want to be cautious about over identifying. Right. Mm -hmm. But even if it weren't for that, even if I were Korean American, there is still, you know, like just now, I described myself as a, a person of East Asian descent who has a weird brain. Mm -hmm. These are points of contact that I can have with this book and its narrative. Also, I mentioned earlier, I am a person who experienced abuse as a child, right? And so that's another point of contact that I can have with the the experiences depicted in these poems. But also, the way that my brain is weird is different, is very tangibly different. The way that I'm Asian American is different, both in our relative ethnicities and the, our degrees of descent from our ancestral homes. Also, you know, the type of abuse that I experienced um, and where it came from and all of those things are real different from what she's describing here. And I feel like I feel like there is there has to be some kind of a sweet spot or happy medium, right? And it, and it all kind of comes down to um, a question that I know both you and I have talked about with other people on our, on our respective shows about this question of whether art um, engenders empathy or compassion, whether that's useful even. And I, I feel like there, there is sort of a duality here. Um, and, and maybe this is what we can close on, right? Because and we have been talking for about two hours now. <laughs> 
is that I feel like, you know, people who are in our circles will have these conversations about not being appropriative or about the limits of empathy, about whether or not it should be necessary to identify with someone in order to care about them or love them. And I think that these are real phenomena that are important to talk about. And yet, at the same time, I, I don't get the sense that most of the time when I'm talking to people who, for example, have written a memoir about their story, and part of it has to do with being Asian American, or they write poems about experiences of being a Black American, I don't, or, or whatever it is, being queer, being mentally ill, I don't get the sense that these writers are guarding that experience and trying to keep people out mm -hmm. of it, you know, and trying to say, no, I don't want this to resonate with you. I don't want you to be talking about how we're not the same. Like, I don't need that right? Which is to me why those moments that I've done that on the show have felt so cringy is because that ultimately was me doing that, mm -hmm. not like me trying to make myself feel better about interfacing with this person and not what they were asking of me. So I feel like, especially for people like me, I think for people like you, but I'm not going to speak for you, we have this maybe tendency to overcorrect <laughs> sometimes <laughs> because I do think that there is something and and specifically the way that she closes she, what she talks about in her acknowledgments that there is a way in which she wants her readers to be able to connect with this stuff that she's talking about and so she's not saying when I mean, she's very explicitly saying the opposite of don't over-identify with me. Don't appropriate me. She's, she's, she's saying, please do connect with this. And I feel like that is important too. Yeah. And I think that does bring us back to the very beginning of the conversation, you know, really nicely, because I think in the beginning you were saying that you weren't quite sure how you would talk to Eugenia herself directly about this book, because, you know, to talk too much about the content felt maybe yucky because it it was not staying with the craft or the madeness of the book and the your experience as a reader and that it it often does feel cringy you know when when somebody is responding only to the most shocking or the most kind of the simplest part in a way of a piece of art at the same time to not acknowledge would be so bizarre because it is what the book is is really about and it's not just about the experiences of abuse and mental illness but it's about the explicitly the need to state those clearly and to and this question of like that that word you know even destigmatize right so you don't want to necessarily like say 
Yeah, cool. You have you have a person who has bipolar disorder. That's so cool. Let's talk about that. Like it's not it's not that, right? Or wow, you got real wow, your dad was not nice. Like that would be inappropriate, right? <laughs> Obviously. Um but at the same time, I think that there is something patholo- pathologizing and stigmatizing about the carefulness that you and I have been taught to have around this but on some level it would be as crazy and here now i just use that word right it would be as <laughs> problematic like imagine if i was having a conversation with denez smith which i did and was like not acknowledge it's not like i need to say to all the listeners hey i'm talking to to a black non-binary person like but if it if it didn't come up like that also would be completely bizarre and so i think that that it is true that like this book is challenging on some level because we do still feel a lot of caution around whether mental illness and history of abuse is an identity, a disorder. It's called a disorder. It's something you want to get better. It's something, how to talk about it, how to talk about it like with care and respect. So I, I, I mean, I think ultimately the reason that I identify with this book or the reason why I enjoyed reading this book. And I did. I did enjoy reading this book. I think she's really searching for how to talk about her lived experience in ways that are healthy and authentic and honest and risky without being capitalizing on the currency of a certain kind of uh, expressed or, or performed pain. And that is something that I struggle with in my life, in my writing, as an artist, as a reader, as a teacher, um, in relationships. And so that I think, you know, she doesn't do it like I do it. She doesn't do it like other people do it. But watching her try to navigate that set of challenges I think maybe is one of the things I'm almost always interested in in art is when people are are really trying to figure out how to represent their lived experience to others, you know, in in ethical ways or what I think of as ethical ways. Yeah. Hmm. So the last question, the question I always end with uh, and one that I didn't um remind you of before we started recording so hopefully this is okay um is just if there is some other piece of art or literature or creativity that you've experienced recently that meant something to you yeah um i'm taking this asynchronous online uh class with jack cornfield who's a buddhist teacher and it it's called it's called stories or something like that. And it's 10 hours of basically these little video segments of him telling different stories, including like Sir Gawain and some Buddhist stories. And, and then he, he tells these stories and talks a little bit about 
the story, but also about why it's helpful to to tell stories and learn from stories. And this has been an extremely painful and difficult few weeks for me. And these stories, listening to these stories, sitting quietly with these stories, but also with the idea of story as a framework um, has been really consoling to me. Mm. And his voice, uh, his compassion, his sense of humor, his way of talking about his own life and uh, and story and storytelling um, is really is very profound for me. So I'm really, really enjoying that. And I felt that when I've read and listened to some of his books as well. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Rachel Zucker. Thank you, Mike Sakasagawa. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, there are links in the show notes for you to purchase your own copy of Bianca. As you heard, reading these poems is an emotionally charged experience, but it's one that I think is highly worthwhile. And that is our show. Editing and mixing on this episode is by me, the music is by Poddington Bear, and transcription help is by Shay Aguinaldo. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider supporting the show by making a pledge to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash likewisemedia, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. There are links in the show notes for that, and you can find all of the show's contact info, transcripts, and show notes on our website at keepthechannelopen.com. That's all for now. We'll be back with a new episode soon, so do be sure to come back for that. And until then, remember, keep the channel open. Keep the channel open.